Right, if you be finding Psalm 100, um, I want to pick up on, um, I think, a, a, a theme that was coming through very clearly on Sunday that the Lord was speaking to us about. Um, and basically, what I want to do tonight is first have a look at the, the pros and cons of being sheep. Um, because that, that seems to be very much what the Lord was speaking to us about on Sunday. Um, the Bible uses... <laughs> Gee, well, this, this fellowship is so predictable sometimes. Um, in, in the Bible, Christians are likened to, to quite a few things. Uh, they're likened to being a body. Um, they're likened to being a building. Well, come on, impersonations of bricks. Uh, got you there. Um, and vine as, as well. You know, you get all these pictures, you know, that in one way we're a body, we're a building, or, you know, Jesus uses a picture of the vine. And one of the, the most frequent um, is this picture of us being a flock of sheep. Um, and, and in Psalm 100, if we just read the first three verses, Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth, Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. And that's exactly what we are. You know, we are the sheep of his pasture. And this, this picture of, of God's people, corporately and individually, being his, his lambs, his sheep, his flock of sheep, you know, recurs again and again and again. Um, it's, it's woven into the very fabric um, of following him. I mean, e even sort of like in leadership in the church, um, you know, the actual leaders um, are called, you know, sort of by th three names, elder, um, and bishop, the, these are all different names for the same function, a leader in the church, and but also pastor. So an elder equals a bishop equals a pastor. And the word pastor can quite legitimately be translated shepherd. So that when we say the Lord is my shepherd, uh, we're saying the Lord is my pastor. And of course it comes from the fact you get the word pastoral, that's where pastor comes from, pastoral, countryside, and it also comes from pasture. And of course, sheep feed in the pasture, and that's where the word pastor comes from. And, you know, so the very idea of leadership in the church is that of being shepherds. And, uh, and of course, in, in Psalm 23, we have the famous statement, the Lord is my shepherd, the Lord is my pastor, saying, I am a sheep, and he is the shepherd, um, who is in control of me. And so therefore, given this, we're going to look at the pros and cons of being sheep. Um, because there are pros and cons. And uh, we're going to look at two things. Um, firstly, we're going to um, have a look at the characteristics of sheep that represent what we shouldn't be like. We're going to start with that. There are things about sheep that represent how we shouldn't be, what the law's trying to change us from being. But then we'll have a little look at uh, the characteristics of sheep that represent what we should be. And, and so with sheep, there's, there's very much this, um, you know, this, this dual picture, all right? There's the good and the bad of being sheep. 
So, um, you know, we'll start with the bad and, uh, you know, just have a look at the various characteristics of sheep that represent what we shouldn't be. This is what the law wants us to be growing out of. Um, and I guess the first thing to say about sheep that is on the, the con side, you know, the, the downside, um, is that, that sheep are mindless. Now, it, it can't be stressed enough that, that, that Christians are most definitely not meant to be mindless. So, in us being sheep, this is a characteristic of sheep that we are not to emulate. In fact, quite the opposite. If you go to, um, to 1 Peter, and we're going to be looking at lots of scriptures tonight. If you find 1 Peter, chapter 3. One Peter chapter three, and if you find the second half of verse fifteen, um, Peter says, "Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have." Now then, what what's the hope you have? Well, you go in heaven. You're saved. Boom boom. Peter's saying, be ready at any time to give your defence on that. To explain to people rationally, objectively, why it is that you know that to be the truth. And Peter says that. He says, do it with gentleness and respect. But he says, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Now that, that's the opposite of being mindless. You need to use your mind for that. That's, that's, there's intellectual content there. And as Christians, we have a duty to make sure that we have thought through our faith so that we can give answers, so that we can explain to people what the Bible says and why it says it and, you know, sort of like what the teaching of the Bible is all about. Um, in, in, in Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 15, don't, don't turn to it, but you get this proverb, and I love this. A simple man believes anything, but a prudent man gives thought to his steps. And in, 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 in some quarters, you do find Christians who rather think that faith is the willingness to believe anything. You know, I mean, the merest hint of some miracle. Oh, I believe it. You know, I'll believe it first, you tell me what it was afterwards. You know, a, a, a kind of an unthinking gullibility. That is simpleness, that is stupidity, that is folly. I mean, you know, the Bible says to test all things. And Paul says that, he gives that bit of teaching in the context of prophesying. You know, and yet so many Christians, I mean, just because something is purported to be miraculous and something is purported to be of God, oh, well, of course, we've got to believe it, haven't we? And there's this kind of unthinking approach, a kind of a mindlessness. And, of course, it ends up making following the Lord kind of home in on subjective experience rather than a question of a rationally thought-out I submit myself to Jesus as Lord. You know, a thinking, a willful thing, an act of the will based on a decision that you've taken in the light of, of, of facts. 
I've I've been particularly struck by um, something that is being said quite a lot um, in regards to you know the whole Toronto blessing thing, and uh, you know I mean sort of here, and I mean my my problem is not with manifestations of God's presence. I've got no problem at all with you know the, the Lord manifesting Himself in such a way that you know that, that you're just on the floor before the power of the Lord. But in regards to things like barking like dogs and, and jumping up and down on the spot and, and, and these rather silly things, um, a kind of a little saying has, has, you know, has kind of been put forward, I think by some people who ought to know better, but it's this idea, they're saying that, that God offends the mind to get to the heart. You know, so people say, well, I mean, this seems crazy to me, barking like dogs, and, you know, and they're saying, well, God, God offends the mind in order to get to the heart. Now, there's one sense in which I agree with that. When you understand the gospel, it is offensive to the mind because it humbles your mind, it makes you realise that all the information we've got about God is what he's given us. I mean, man does not by wisdom find out God. That humbles the mind, that offends the mind, and to that extent I've got no problem. It's possible to, you know, mankind is a bit obsessed with his knowledge, thinks he's so clever he can do anything. Well, that is absolute rot, he can't, he's nothing. That offends the mind. But when you've got <clears throat> a situation where barking like dogs, jumping up and down on the spot, waving your arms like a windmill, when we're told that this is, you know, kind of like, you know, a, a, you know, that this is God, and, you know, sort of like, well, don't question it, just accept it. And if it offends your mind, it's because God's trying to get your heart. I mean, I mean this, is, this is crazy. It's, it's an unthinkingness. It's, it's a turning one's back on the mind. And what we've got to understand is that in order to establish whether or not something is the Holy Spirit or not, We've got to test it against the scriptures, and that, by definition, is an act of rational thought. It's an act of logical thinking. And so anything that turns its back on the mind and says, in effect, well, look, you know, throw your mind out of the window because God's moving. Forget your mind, God's moving, is completely wrong. That is an anti-intellectualism, it's an anti-mind thing that, that, that is not of the Lord in any way at all. And so, you know, we need to make sure that we are thinking people. And believe you me, to be a thinking Christian is not going to keep you away from the manifestations of the Lord. In fact, quite to the contrary. The more you read the Bible, the more you think, the more you realise just how powerful God is, and the more open that makes you. But the point is, any question of barking like dogs and jumping up and down on the spot and stuff like that, you'll reject that as silliness, quite rightly. So have no fear that using our minds is somehow going to put a barrier up between us and God and that the Lord won't be able to manifest himself amongst us, quite the contrary. Paul says, when manifestations occur, test them. If prophecy occurs, test it, and you test it by the word of God. If you go to, um, to Mark chapter 12, and Jesus um, certainly says something here that, that I think sums it up quite nicely. Mark chapter 12, if you find verse 30. <clears throat> and this is when... Um, 
the teachers of the law are saying, you know, Jesus, which, which commandment is most important? And this is Jesus' version of the commandment that comes through in Deuteronomy. And he says this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And, you know, sort of like there, there are Christians, that there are branches of Christianity, particularly in the charismatic movement, that would almost cut the mind out there. And uh, it's, it's, it's a big mistake. We're to love the Lord our God with all our mind. We've got to use our mind to the full. Go back to 1 Peter, and uh, this time the first chapter. And uh, find verse 13. This is a very apt word today, I think. Because, of course, the, the answer to abuse of gifts of the Spirit isn't, isn't non-use. It's right use. You know, not in any way against, you know, any idea of, you know, of the Lord moving in supernatural ways. The more, the more we see of that, the better. But it's only safe if you're a thinking Christian. Uh, and here, 1 Peter 1 verse 13, he says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. See? Prepare your minds for action. Not stand there with your hands in the air, emptying your mind in an attempt to open yourself to the Holy Spirit. Quite the contrary. To be open to God doesn't ever involve emptying our minds. And though he says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. And uh, in the King James Version, it's rather quaint the way they translate it, and it's gird up the loins of your mind. And that's, that's, that's a rather nice picture. In the ancient world, they used to wear tunics, you know, a bit like dresses, they went all the way down. And uh, if, if there was a bit of action required, um, then if you're wearing like the equivalent of a long dress or tunic, it gets in the way. And they used to wear a rope, didn't they, or a belt. And what they used to do is that if there was a bit of running to do, they used to literally pull, pull their tunic up and, and tuck it into their belt or into the rope. Tuck it in. And that was, that was called girding up your loins, i.e. pulling your dress up ready for action. That's, that's what it was. And Peter's here saying, right, do that with your minds. Get ready for action. You know, use your head. Now, obviously, it's not talking here about operating above one's intellectual ability. That would be silly. Not everyone are going to be deep Christian thinkers or Bible teachers or theologians. Of course not. But what it does mean, it means at least use both your brain cells at the same time. Don't forever have one of them on holiday. You know, that's what it means. Whatever your capability intellectually, use it to the full. You know, so you, you don't have to have an IQ of 150 or anything like that, but whatever equipment you've got mentally, use it to the full. So then, sheep are mindless. We shouldn't be. Now, then, a second uh, aspect uh, or thing about sheep that, that, that we shouldn't be like is that, um, but, but sadly we are, is that sheep are actually rather dirty animals. They do a lot of wallowing in mud. They don't care where they walk. I mean, they'll wallow in mud, they'll wallow in anything. And this, this, this kind of rather cute picture we have 
don't we, of a, you know, these little, you know, sort of like white balls of fluff, you know, bouncing around and, you know, and a purer, whiter than white you couldn't get, is, is, is actually illusory. I mean, yeah, if you take a quick glance at sheep against green grass, well, yes, relative to the green grass, they kind of look white. But you have a look at a sheep up against snow. Well, ju ju just have a good look at a sheep. They're filthy. They're horrible. They're not kind of, uh, you know, whiter than white at all. And there's a sense in which we, we can kid ourselves about this. You know, there's always a tendency we see ourselves as being a little bit whiter than we actually are, don't we? And, um, you know, sort of like this is the whole whitewashed tomb thing. It's when Jesus said to the Pharisees, you're like whitewashed tombs. It's easy to make yourself white on the outside, but the white is covering a lot of dirt on the inside. And, uh, you know, and so, so, so sheep are actually, you know, sort of rather dirty creatures. And, 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 and this does speak very well, very graphically, of, of our own situation. And I want to give you a thought here that you've probably never had before, but I think it's, uh, I think it's a good one, it's a helpful one. And uh, one of the things that, you know, does show just how dirty sheep are is that any shepherd will tell you about the absolute necessity of something called sheep dip. And when you realise that, uh, that the Greek word for baptise means to dip, you really do have a marvellous picture. Because in order for a sheep to be safe, you literally have to dip it in the sheep dip. You have to baptise it. And in that action, all the dirt and all the horrible stuff on it, all the, you know, the creepy crawlies are killed by the sheep dip. And, you know, so there's a real sense in which you and I, when we became Christians, our baptism was our sheep dip. And that was the first thing that the Lord had to do to us. He says, right, okay, you're coming out of the pen of the world. Now you're coming into my sheep pen. Right, okay, in the dip, you know. And, you know, sort of Jesus said, I am, I am the door to the sheep, and through you go. And as you go through Jesus, I mean, his purity, obviously, is like a sheep dip, and it cleanses us. And that is what baptism is a picture of. If you go to, um, go to Titus, Titus chapter 3 and, and, and verse 5, um, no, I'll read from, from verse 4. He says, But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And you see, baptism obviously is that picture of what happened to you when you were born again. You were born again, renewed by the Holy Spirit, and you were kind of like, you know, sort of washed by that rebirth. You know, and it's sort of like, you know, in the bath we baptise people that, you know, sort of like, you know, you pull the plug and, 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 and all, the, all the sin, all the muck, it goes down the plug hole because it's been forgiven, it's been dealt with. Well, that's, that, that's the sheep dip, isn't it? That's what happens when we're born again. And baptism is a picture of that. Um, if you go to Ephesians, we'll see, see this again, Ephesians chapter 5. And um, this is Paul's comparison of marriage and the church. 
In verse 25 he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without Spain, uh, Spain, <laughs> without, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, holy and blameless. And there again, that picture of that washing, because that's what happened. When you were born again, you were washed, you were justified, justified, never sinned, made clean, as it were, once and for all. Now, those two, you know, scriptures that we've just looked at, they're kind of like the once and for all. There's a sense in which, you know, there's a one-off sheep dip that does, it's such a powerful sheep dip, it does, does the job once and for all, all right? And yet we know as well that whereas we've been made clean once and for all, nevertheless, on a daily basis, we do keep getting a bit grubby, don't we? To say the least. And so there's a daily cleansing that we need to keep having. And uh, if, if you go to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10 and, and, and verse 22, and the writer says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Now, what he's talking about there, he's using the Old Testament sacrificial system to say this all represents Jesus. And of course there, he's talking about the ritual washings and sacrifices that the Jews had to do in an ongoing way in order to have their sins forgiven. And of course, this is the same for us. There's another, we've had our once and for all sheep dip, haven't we? You know, we've been born again, we've been baptised. But nevertheless, we know that as we kind of, you know, day by day, we still sin. We still need this ongoing cleansing, you know, with sort of like the pure water of the Holy Spirit. And um, you get a lovely picture of this in, in, in John 13, if, if you turn to it. And it's, it's the thing when, when Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And, and there's a, a, a marvellous picture here of the kind of like, you know, the once and for all sheep dip. And, and, and yet one still needs an ongoing day by day cleansing as well. And, um, and in John 13, um, we'll start reading from verse 6. He's kind of started to wash their feet now. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't know what I'm doing now, but later you'll understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Now, typical reaction, Peter said, no, you're not washing my feet. Jesus says, yes, I've got to, or you've got no part in me. So Peter says, well, okay, right, fine. So he says, um, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Peter says, all right, let's go the whole hog, Lord. You know, give me a bath. And then Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean though not every one of you. Obviously he says that because um, Judas was there. But the point is, he said to Peter, I'm going to wash your feet. Peter says, no, you can't do that, Lord. Can't wash my feet. And then he says, well, if I don't, 
you can't have any part of me. So Peter says, okay, Lord, give us a bath then. And he says, no, you don't need a bath. You've had a bath. It's your feet that are dirty. I'm just going to wash your feet because the rest of you are clean. Now, what he's saying to Peter there is that the picture is that, um, that once and for all, you know, in the same way, you know, in, you know, in the ancient world they wore sandals. So if, if you were going out somewhere, you had a bath, made yourself look nice, you set off. By the time you got there, you're still all nice and clean, but your feet aren't. And so your feet need to be washed, and that was the job of the servants. And of course, the picture is that because we're born again, because we're justified, because of the blood of Jesus, we've had our bath, we are clean, we are presentable to God, we are allowable into heaven, we are clean. We've been made clean by that washing of water with the word. And baptism represents that. We've had our sheep dip, all right, our once and for all sheep dip. But the point is, as we follow the Lord, we're still in the world. And often in the Bible, the Christian life is described as a walk. And as we walk through the world, our feet get dirty. We still sin. We still pick up the sin and the dirt of the world. And therefore, our feet need to be washed daily, again and again and again, even though our bodies are clean. And that's the picture, and that's where confession and repentance comes in. So that for us, we've had our sheep dip. We've, we've come in, Jesus said, I'm the door of the sheep. We've gone in the door of the sheep. We've gone through the sheep dip, and baptism pictures just that. We've been made clean. And yet, like sheep, we still tend to wallow in the mud. If there's a bit of dirt, we'll go and find it, won't we? And so we have to keep having this kind of foot washing again and again and again, daily, with the Lord. And of course, all the time, he's wanting to... Um, Get us to be cleaner sheep. A sheep left to itself will be a very dirty sheep. But when the Lord is your shepherd, he wants a bit of a clean-up. And, and so there's that picture there. So just remember, baptism, sheep dip, all right? It's, it's a, good, a good picture. And then a, a, a third thing about sheep that um, kind of we're not meant to be like is that uh, sheep have a, a, a tendency to wander off, don't they? Uh, you know, to, to isolate themselves, to kind of get lost. This is back to their not, you know, not being very clever. You know, sort of like there's 5,000 sheep over there, and I'm, I'm in the middle of 5,000 sheep, all right? And I turn round, and there's not another sheep in sight, you know, and I'm now, as sheep do this, don't they? They, they tend to get isolated. And of course, when that happens to them, they're easy prey for the enemy. Um, if you go to Psalm 119 and uh, actually find the, um, find the last verse, Psalm 119 and verse 176, And the psalmist says this, I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I have not forgotten your commands. That's true. If we know it's, oh Lord, I've strayed again. Come and find me. Come and seek your servant. And it's a tendency that sheep have. And uh, it's certainly a tendency that we have as well. Always, we, we naturally gravitate away from the Lord, don't we? I mean, our new nature gravitates towards him, but we all know as well that that old nature, it gravitates away from him. I mean, is, 
Is it, more, is it easier to pray or not to pray? Where do you gravitate? Where's the effort? I have to put the effort into praying. There might be some Christians, it's an effort for them to stop praying, but I have to say I can't identify with that. You know, <laughs> you know what's it's easier to read? You know, good novel or hi-fi magazine or the Bible? I, 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 I know where I gravitate. And we do, we wander, don't we? There's the herd, there's the Lord in the midst of the herd, and yet we're vanishing over the brow of a hill all the time, aren't we? And, uh, you know, there's that tendency that, 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 that sheep have. And uh, if, if, if you go to Luke 15, there's this, this lovely story that, that, that Jesus told on, you know, sort of basically <coughs> highlighting this tendency and yet the attitude that he has towards us when that tendency gets the better of us. And in Luke 15, and uh, verse 3, Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. And isn't it lovely to know that when we do stray, whether it's in a major way or whether it's in a minor way, you know, sort of like whether you've just kind of got caught in a thicket or whether you're at the bottom of a 200-foot cavern, you know, sort of having managed to fall off a cliff. <laughs> Whatever it is, the Lord comes looking. Now, obviously, we have to say, Lord, take me back. Obviously, you know, but obviously when, you know, one tends to. But as soon as we do that, then the Lord is just thrilled to have us back. And, you know, so this tendency to stray is there. But when the Lord gets us back, you know, as, as, as every time we sin, it's a straying, isn't it? And, you know, sort of like we've got to be careful of that. And, uh, you know, those of you who were a big Doctor Who's fans and, and, and followed the Daleks over many years, the Daleks worked on a very particular military strategy and they would divide and conquer. Whatever world they were trying to conquer, it was always their strategy, divide and conquer. Now that is always Satan's, or it's one of the strategies that Satan uses against us. He's got lots of different approaches that he takes, but one of them is divide and conquer. Because quite simply, if Satan can get you to wander off, as it were, from the flock, you're vulnerable. You're far more vulnerable going it alone than you are being in the midst of the flock where you're supposed to be. And if you go to Hebrews 10, this is exactly why you get the, um, the advice that the writer gives that we're just, just about to read. Hebrews 10 and verse 25, he says, Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And it must be said that any tendency, any desire to separate yourself off, to, to, to hive away from fellowship, it is always Satan trying to isolate you. Now, having said that, obviously, 
there can be legitimate reasons why any one individual meeting, there might be a good reason to not go. I mean, but what I'm talking about is the tendency, you know, to sort of like to hive off, to, to, to that is always Satan. He's trying to lure you off, and when you're on your own, it will be much easier for him to pick you off. Uh, individuality, all right, is what Christianity is about, but not individualism. We are individuals, but the moment you put your individuality above being part of a corporate body, you're in danger. And individualism comes in, Satan isolates you, and uh, he'll pick you off virtually at leisure. So sheep have a tendency to wander off, don't they? We, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. And that, you know, in Isaiah 53, and, and, and that's one of the tendencies. So we've got to watch that. We've got to make sure we're not doing it. Right, okay, well there's the cons, but now the pros. This is what we should be like. Aspects, characteristics of sheep that we should be like. Now the first one is that sheep are characterised by what we call gentleness. They're very non-aggressive creatures. Um, even when cornered, they don't tend to defend themselves. They'll run away if they can, but if they can't run away, they won't actually defend themselves. And so they represent a kind of a gentleness, a meekness, that is a characteristic of the Christian life that the Lord wants in us. I mean, this was absolutely personified in Jesus himself. If you go to um, Isaiah 53 now, We'll be back here again later. But um, Isaiah 53 and, and, and verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And that is, that's, the personification of that attribute, a, a, a total self-giving, a total submission to the will of God. And we'll, we'll be back to the fact that Jesus became a sheep a bit later on. And so this, this kind of aspect, this characteristic of, of, of sheep, it, it, repre you know, it represents to us the characteristics of graciousness and kindness. Because that, that is the heart of the character that the Lord wants to produce in us. If you go to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. I mean, to sum up the Christian character, gracious and kind. I mean, isn't that what Jesus is? From the top of his head to the tip of his toes, Jesus is gracious and he's kind. He's lamb-like. And Ephesians chapter 4, I'll read verse 1 to 3. Paul says, As a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. It's in you. Work it out. Work out your own salvation. God's worked it in, you work it out. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. 
Now that's the opposite to a wolf, that's a lamb. The wolf comes in and calls chaos. The wolf comes in and, well, I'm standing up for my rights. I'm not letting you get away with that. that that's the, you know, the fight, the wolf. This is the lamb. This is the characteristic that the law wants in us. Go, go, go to 29. It says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up. The wolf, well, it's going to be stuff will come out of the wolf's mouth that harms the sheep, not helps them, according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling, slander. This is all the opposite of being the lamb along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's, that's how he wants us to be. That's, that's the nature that he's given us, that when we were born again, that's the nature that we've got. Go to Colossians. This is what sheep are like, and we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Colossians chapter 3. Start reading from verse 12. He says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, Holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. This is the lamb spirit as opposed to the wolf spirit. This is, you know, he says, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Well, why did the Lord forgive you? Because he's the Lamb of God. It's what lambs do. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Because if, if you've got the peace of the Lord in your own heart, if you're at peace with God and with yourself, you're going to be at peace with other people. Since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That, that's, well, th this is life together, isn't it? Th this is great. Go to 1 Peter. All this is, is, is characterised by, you know, the nature of sheep. And find 1 Peter chapter 2. And, um... The connection here is that in verse 22, Peter quotes from Isaiah 53 about, you know, Jesus as the Lamb of God becoming, you know, the sacrifice for sin. And in verse 13 down to verse 17, it talks about submitting to authorities and uh, showing respect to everyone 
that's that's verse 17 show proper respect to everyone so a respectful submissive attitude um, in 18 it talks about relationships slaves submit to your masters and blah 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 and um, and then it talks about you know sort of um, you know that Christ suffered for us and in verse 22 you get the quote from Isaiah 53 and then in verse 23 it says when they hurled their insults at him he didn't retaliate when he suffered he made no threats instead he entrusted himself to him who judges justly he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness by his wounds you've been healed for you were like sheep going astray but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer or bishop of your souls and shepherd could be pastor and the point there that Jesus as he was badly treated he took it he went through with it he submitted to it in order to die so that our sins could be forgiven so the point is that when he was treated badly he met bad treatment with love and grace and forgiveness he didn't kind of what well, if you're going to be rotten to me i'm going to be rotten to you back and, and and all this is kind of like the the spirit of the lamb you know what what we're supposed to be like now second aspect of uh, being sheep or or characteristic that sheep have is that they exist for the benefit of others sheep don't exist for themselves they exist to provide for other people and for instance they provide wool for clothing and they provide food for eating and that sheep are there they're herded to benefit other people and and of course that represents for us if I'm to be a sheep it means I'm here for the benefit, not primarily of myself, but, the, but for others, those who are around me. And so this represents selfless service, service to others, a denial of myself and putting others before me. And that is what we've got here. If you go to Galatians, Galatians chapter 5, and in verse 13, Paul says, You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature, rather serve one another in love. So, in the same way that sheep, they provide wool for clothing, and they make the ultimate sacrifice and become our dinners, this represents the fact that we're to serve each other. If I'm a lamb, if I'm a sheep, I'm going to benefit you, all right? And so, service to each other. Go to Luke, Luke chapter 24. And if you find verse 27... Nope, forget that. I've got the wrong um <laughs> No, I <laughs> yeah, I've got the um I've got the wrong thing written down there. So, you know, so forget that. But I mean, throughout the Bible, the importance of serving each other. In Ephesians, Paul talks about good works that God has prepared for us to walk in. 
And those good works always boil down to serving other people around. And so therefore, in exactly the same way that a sheep, its wool is used to clothe people, and indeed its very body is used to feed people, sheep are there to serve others. And that is the same for us. If we're to follow the Lord, then we've got to make sure that we're serving those who are around us. And, um, you know, but the problem is, as somebody once said, that I, I'm okay at being a servant until people start treating me like one. And, of course, that, that is when we find out if we truly have the servant spirit. You know, whether I really have this attitude that I am the servant of those around me. And, uh, you know, remember that, um, you know, that Jesus, when um, the disciples had the, uh, the argument about who was the greatest, Jesus said, well, the greatest among you is he who serves. It's not a question of lording it over. The greatest among you is he who serves. And he says, look, I, I'm the son of man. I came not to be served, but to serve. So I'm here serving you. Remember Jesus washing the disciples' feet. That was the lowliest, one of the lowliest jobs that a lowly servant had to do. And that's the example that Jesus gave to us. So therefore, we have got to be servants of one another and of those who are around us. And uh, just, just back to the particular way that sheep do serve, there's their wool for clothing and um, their body for eating. And uh, their wool, I think, rather represents what you call the outside. You know, you wear clothes. If, if you've got a sheep and there's its wool, you wear it. It tends the outside. It meets a bodily need on the outside. And yeah, if we're to be servants of each other and those around us, it means that we've got to be servants in a practical way, in a material way. You know, so that, for instance, if someone needs practical help, you give them practical help. You know, if someone's down on their luck financially, you help them out financially. So, in, in the same way that wool clothes the outside, the outside of us is our body. So, we've got to be servants of each other in that very practical way. But food represents the inside. Because if you give me a nice lamb chop, that doesn't clothe me on the outside, that goes on the inside. And it means that we've got to serve each other on their insides as well. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, it means that in our service, it's not just that we've got to do what's good for their body. Well, I mean, if you're hungry, I'll feed you. That's good for your body. If, if you're cold, I'll give you some clothes. That's good for your body. But the point is that we've got to be good for people on their inside as well, mentally and emotionally. Can you see the difference? So that you might have someone who's, uh, you know, who's kind of like, you know, if they, if they see you, you know, if you, that you're hungry, well, they'll be the first to, you know, take you and, you know, prepare you a meal or buy you a meal or something. And, uh, and that's great. But on the other hand, 10 minutes conversing with them and you're totally depressed. Because as soon as they open their mouth, whereas they're doing good to your body by feeding you, what's coming out of their mouth is so depressing you, it's doing you bad on the inside. You see what I mean? 
So it's important that we're good for people, not just bodily, but on the inside as well. For instance, let's ask questions like, um, am I an encouraging person to be with? If someone were to spend lots of time with me, are they going to be encouraged or are they going to be discouraged? You see what I mean? Are they going to be built up? If you spend lots of time with people, do you build them up or do you drag them down? What do you give to them on the inside? Uh, are you positive or are you negative? I mean, if they spend lots of time with you, will they end up, you know, sort of like, you know, knowing that every dark cloud has a silver lining? Because it has, because Jesus is Lord. Or will they just become aware that for every silver lining there's a dark cloud somewhere? Can you see the difference in outlook? Is it going to be positive or negative? So the point is, what am I putting out? Am I building people up or am I putting them down? So we've got to ask this question. Am I good for people bodily? That's important. If you're hungry, I'll feed you. If you need practical help, I'll give it to you. But are we good for people on the inside as well, emotionally and mentally? You know, so I mean, the point is, if you, you know, if you come round, you know, sort of like if you're down, if you come and see me, will I lift you up? Or will I say, oh, well, yeah, I know exactly how you feel and send you away even worse than you came? Can you see? That's what I mean by being good for each other on the inside. The you know, sheep provide wool for the outside and food for the inside. So we've got to make sure that we make people feel good rather than make people feel bad. I mean, you know, if we, again, if people spend time with me, have, have I brought them closer to the Lord? Or will I send them away thinking, oh dear, you know, sort of, oh goodness, being with that person has led me into sin that perhaps had I been with someone else I wouldn't have been led into. Can you see, the, these are the kind of questions that we've got to ask. If you go to 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5 and find verse 11. And he says, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up. You see? Now what's the other? What's the contrast to that? Discourage people and tear them down, however you do it. All right. Um, if you find 1 Corinthians 8, One Corinthians chapter eight. And um, verse one. And uh, the second half, um, Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And again, if people are with us, what is it we're trying to do? Are we just trying to impress them? Because if, if we do that, if, if we use our time with other people merely to project ourselves, however we do it, a kind of a look at me, aren't I impressive? Then all we've done is we've puffed ourselves up. All right? But if we put them first and love them, then we'll build them up. 
Can you see the difference? So, if someone, if you spend time with me, if I merely use that selfishly to project me, I puff myself up. And if people puff themselves up, it looks stupid, doesn't it? So all I've done is make myself look stupid, and I haven't helped you at all. But if I love you and put you before me, I've built you up. You're a little bit bigger, you're a little bit stronger, you're a little bit more full of grace because of spending time with me. Now, that's the, can you see what I mean? I've got to you know, ask this question, what is the result of people spending time with us? We need to help them be servants of one another, say, not just on the outside, but on the inside as well. And then a third aspect, a third thing about sheep, which ought to be true of us as well, is that sheep are quite helpless without their shepherd. A sheep without a shepherd is quite lost, hasn't got a clue what to do, you know, virtually needs, um, you know, sort of like instructions on how to eat grass. And uh, sheep are helpless without their shepherd. If you go to um, Matthew chapter 9, and if you find verse 36, And it says of Jesus that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And that was absolutely right that they were. Because God has designed sheep to be like that, helpless, without a shepherd. And he has designed us as human beings to be helpless without him. And we ought to be helpless without him. Well, I'll rephrase that. We are helpless without him, but the tragedy is that so often we don't realise that we're helpless without him. We think we're doing okay. If you go to John, chapter 15, And find verse 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. See? Sheep without a shepherd, helpless. But the tragedy is that so often we don't realise that we're helpless without him and that we do do things apart from him. You know, we kind of drift away and think, oh, well, I mean, you know, you know, all, all sort of like, oh, I'll plan my future out and I'll do this and I'll do that. And, and it's all coming from us. It's all self, self, self. And, of course, the Lord has to work in us to, 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 to keep us realising that we're helpless without him. If you go to 2 Corinthians in chapter 12, we'll see what the Lord did in Paul to keep him helpless. Because Paul had a great tendency to, 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 to forget how helpless he was without the Lord. And in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about all the revelations that he had and, and that he'd even been to heaven. And, uh, but in verse 7, he says, To keep me from becoming deceited, conceited, 
because of these surpassingly great things, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. See, Paul kept thinking he was strong. So God gave him this thorn in the flesh, whatever it was, to show him he wasn't, to show him he was weak. And he says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, what a contrast to, to, to so often testimonies that you hear from people nowadays. It's all glory, it's all victory, it's all strength. Whereas here, what Paul is saying, look, I glory anything, anything that shows me how weak I am, I'm, I glory in it. Because I forget. Left to myself, I think I'm okay. I think I can do it myself. And he says, anything, any problems or difficulties or hardships or whatever it is that makes me realise how weak I am, he says, that I glory in because it's making me realise how dependent I am on Jesus, how helpless I would be without him. And then if you go forward into um, still 2 Corinthians, but chapter 4, just see a little bit more on this that Paul wrote. Go back, sorry, to back to chapter 4 and uh, verse 7. Uh, he's talking about this, the treasure which is Jesus, that God himself lives in us. That's the treasure that Paul's talking about here, the very glory of God. And he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay, which isn't the obvious choice to put great treasure in, but that's what God has done. He hasn't gone for really dinky glass goblets. He's gone for lumps of clay for you and me. Had he thought, right, I'm going to put my treasure in beautiful gold-plated caskets, well, I wouldn't be a Christian, would I? But when he says, well, lumps of clay will do, suddenly I qualify. And he says, to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Not from us. And the fact that God has taken us as clay simply shows up the glory of the treasure even more. And that's absolutely right. And Paul says, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. And you've got there, again, all the difficulties of life. But Paul glories in it, because he says, it all helps me to realise that I am the clay, 
And the more I realize that, the more I'm absolutely in dependence on Jesus as my shepherd. And the more I depend on him, the more I abide in him, the more Jesus can shine out through me and be glorified and the treasure is revealed to those around us. Hence, let your light so shine before men. This is how we do it. And it's all the time realizing our weakness. So sheep are helpless without a shepherd. Tragedy is that of ourselves, I mean, we become Christians, no sooner out the sheep dip than some of us are on our way to change the world for Jesus. All right, Lord, you leave it to me. See, I know that was how it was with me. Didn't have the faintest idea how helpless I actually was. That comes through time. That comes through God dealing in our lives. But how vital it is that he does, so that we know, we do realise how helpless we are as sheep, and that apart from Jesus, apart from the shepherd, we can do nothing. Now, I just want to, you know, sort of like start to wind up by, um, you know, while we're on this thing about sheep and shepherd, and to remind ourselves that, yeah, the Lord is our shepherd. But to remind ourselves that the Lord is also the Lamb of God. And that therefore, our shepherd became our shepherd by also becoming one of the sheep. Can you see? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And he is. But now go to John 10. Oh, not but now, John. We're going to see this in John 10. And in verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And then, in verse 14, Jesus again says, I am the good shepherd. So Jesus, the Lord, is our shepherd. But in John 1, verse 29, we have John the Baptist testifying to Jesus, saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? Because shepherds aren't sheep, are they? Well, actually, in the kingdom of God, they are. Our shepherd has become a sheep himself. <coughs> and that the Lord often beats a problem by becoming it. It's the nature of how God works, identification. He beats a problem by becoming the problem. And the problem was twofold. The problem was with man, it was with us, so God became a man, second person of the Trinity became a human being. And the problem with us was sin. And so what did Jesus do? He became sin. So what we have here is that the problem was with the sheep, so our shepherd became a sheep. If you go back to Isaiah, and find uh, the, the end of verse, uh, the end of chapter fifty-two. Isaiah fifty-two and verse fourteen, and it says, "Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness." And then into chapter fifty-three and verse six to seven. 
And he says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And that is why he was so disfigured and people were so appalled at him, because the sin of the world went on him. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent. So here we have it. Isaiah 53 is dealing with the fact that Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, was coming to die in order to solve the problem of sheep who had gone astray. And so he does it by becoming the Lamb of God. He becomes a sheep. And of course in the sacrifices in the Old Testament, the really biggie sacrifice was a sheep. And the high priest laid hands on the sheep and the bloke who bought it laid hands on the sheep and the sin of the person who bought it went on the sheep and the sheep died for the sin of the person. And there, there's that picture that, that, that Jesus, he became the problem, he became us and then he became sin. Actually just see, go to 2 Corinthians 5, actually see that thing about him becoming sin. Two Corinthians chapter five and verse twenty-one. This is incredible. It says God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Jesus became sin. It's beyond their understanding. We can we we can grasp a bit that he became a man. But to then go one step forward and that Jesus became sin is beyond us. We just know it's true because the Bible says it. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what happened is that Jesus became our sin so that we could become his righteousness. And before God we're righteous. Before God, we are justified. Justified never sinned. It's almost as if we went in the sheep dip and that cleansed us from our sin. But Jesus went in the sheep dip and everything, that all the dirt that came off of us into the sheep dip, Jesus took out the sheep dip into himself and he carried it to the cross. And hence, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. That is exactly what Jesus has done. So our shepherd has become a sheep just like us. And of course there, you've got the nature of leadership in the Kingdom of God. And this is vitally important. We, we saw right at the beginning, you know, that one of the words for elders is shepherd, pastor. And with the example of Jesus, our shepherd became one of the sheep. We see that in the kingdom of God, leadership, and not just official leadership, you don't have to be a leader, an official elder, to lead other people. So all leadership in the kingdom of God, all leadership in the church, is that the shepherds are sheep as well. And so often on the Christian scene, leadership often fails to be like that. And that there's this great distinction, shepherds and sheep, leaders and led. And 
But when you understand that shepherds are sheep as well, then you're not going to have any leading from on high. You know, here are the big leaders up here and us plebs and we follow. There they are up there. There won't be anything like that. Neither will there be any great leading from the front. You know, the leaders are, you know, sort of like always ahead of the flock. You know, separate from them. I'm a friend of mine. Let's go to a church and after the Sunday meeting, all the elders used to go down Pizza Hut together. Plebs didn't get invited. You see, like, it's almost like a caste system, isn't it? There won't be leadership like that. When you realise that the shepherds are sheep too, leadership is from in the midst of the fold. Why? Well, because where do sheep belong? In the middle of all the other sheep. So if shepherds are sheep, where are you going to find the shepherds? Well, in with all the sheep. Can you see what I mean? There's not going to be this great leader, pleb, distinction and divide that so often exists in the kingdom. And so that's important. Jesus, our shepherd, became a sheep, gives us the understanding of the nature of leadership in the Christian church. And the nature of, you know, example, if you want to influence someone, you influence them by example. You influence them by being in there with them. It's not an influence by, you know, sort of like, you know, sort of like the finger shaking and, you know, sort of like stern lecturing and, and, and stuff like it, it doesn't work like that. It's being in with people and leading them from within. That's the key. And while we're on this, I just want to um, draw to a close by actually having a look at Peter and see how, how it was that Jesus prepared Peter for leadership. If you go to to Luke, you'll see how this all ties up with sheep and stuff like that. If you go to Luke 22 and uh, verse 31, Luke 22, in fact this is at the last sub supper, it's just after, you know, when the disciples have had an argument, who's the greatest, and Jesus says, well, the one who's the greatest is the servant. So serve. If you want to be the greatest, serve. Be the servant at table. And, uh, and immediately after this, in verse 31, this is Jesus speaking to Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Now, there's a couple of interesting things there. First of all, um, Satan had to ask. He always has to ask whether he's going to, whether he wants to tempt you or whether he wants to martyr you. He's got to ask the Lord first. Please, sir, can I? And if the Lord considers that it would be for your best, he'll say to Satan, yes. And if the Lord considers it's not for your best, or that you don't have grace to accept it, he'll say no. You know, this, this, this keeps Satan in perspective, doesn't it? Satan has to ask permission before he does anything. He's got to ask the Lord's, you know, 
can I do this? And Lord will say yes or no. So that's where Satan is under our feet, completely defeated, beaten under our feet. And, uh, you know, so here, Jesus is, he says yes to Satan. All right, you can, yeah, be useful actually. You can sift Peter like wheat. You know, get, get the chaff out of him. That's what sifting is. You've got the good stuff, you've got bad stuff. Well, you sift it, and all the chaff, all the rubbish, gets separated out from the grain, the good stuff. And so, you know, sort of Jesus is saying to Peter, well, yeah, Satan is going to sift you. He's, you know, the old threshing sledge. You know, you're, you're going to get beaten around a bit by Satan, but it's good. He says, I've prayed that your faith won't fail. Now, this is interesting. And he says, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brethren. Now, Peter was going to be a leader amongst Christians, hence strengthen your brethren. But Jesus said, when you've turned back, now, that actual word is converted, when you've been converted. The actual word converted in the Bible, or the equivalent in the Greek, doesn't mean when you actually are born again. It just means when you turn back. I, when you've gone astray, you come back to the Lord. And what Jesus is saying to Peter here, he says, Peter, Satan's going to sift you, you're going to be tested. And when you've failed, <laughs> when you've repented, then be a leader. That's, that's literally what Jesus is saying. Now, look at Peter's reply, verse 33. But Peter replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. He's saying, me? Fail? Oh, Lord, how could you think such a thing? I won't need to turn again. I'll just strengthen my brethren. I'll die for you, Jesus. No problem. All oh, this Satan sifting me like wheat. Lord, don't you worry. I won't let you down. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the cock crows today, you'll deny me three times. Now, we've got to understand that when Peter said, Lord, I'll die for you, he meant it. He loved Jesus. He meant it. But Peter's problem was his estimation of himself was all wrong. He had the desire, but he thought he had the ability. And the ability, of course, comes from the Lord. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So if you then move on into verse 54, we get the fact that uh, from verse 54 down to verse 62, um, Peter, three times, in a very short period of time, denies he knows Jesus. We'll just pick it up on the third one, verse 60. Peter replied, I don't know what you're talking about. This is the third time he's denied Jesus. He's been given his chance to die for Jesus, isn't he? Three times and he blows it. Just as he was speaking, the cock crowed. Now, at this time, Jesus was being led away in all these various mock trials. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the cock crows today, you'll disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Wept bitterly. See, it broke him. Absolutely broke him. Now, if you go to John and find chapter 21 and verse 15. This is after Jesus has been raised from the dead. And he's revealing himself to Peter. 
and from verse 15 and you'll find of great significance that something happens here three times because Peter denied him three times when they finished eating Jesus said to Peter Simon do you truly love me more than these yes Lord you know I love you he said Jesus said feed my lambs that's be a leader be an elder again Jesus said do you truly love me he answered yes you know I love you Jesus said take care of my sheep See, he said be a shepherd be a leader, take care of the Christians. The third time he says, Simon, do you love me? Peter was hurt. Well, obviously, because Jesus was reminding him, Peter, you denied me three times. You see, I'm asking you if you love me three times. Three times you couldn't follow it through. Now feed my sheep. The third time he said, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, I know you know all things, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. And what Jesus is saying here, he's saying, look, Simon, three times you denied me, you blew it, you totally and utterly blew it. You became a complete and utter failure. You thought you were a success. You've become a failure. And Jesus says, right, now you're qualified to be a leader. Because you're going to leave failures. That's what we are, isn't it? That's what Christians are. We're failures. Peter was a success. Well, in his own eyes. It was a lie. He wasn't. But in his own eyes, in his own eyes he was a success. And therefore, to prepare him for leadership, Jesus had to bring him to the point where he knew that he was a failure as well, that he was deluding himself to think he was such a great Christian. And now, because he is in the knowledge of what a failure he was, truly repentant, truly broken, he was therefore in a position to lead other believers. Because he'd be able to identify with them. Remember, you know, Jesus, the shepherd, became a sheep. Well, if leaders, or forget just leaders, but, you know, but if you're going to help someone, you're helping a failure. Well, won't it help for you to know that you're a failure? You'll be able to identify with the person. They'll be able to identify with you. So it's one of the fundamental <coughs> qualifications for being a leader. And it's knowing what a failure you are and being broken at your own sinfulness. Because otherwise you're just going to be one of, you know, leading from the front and, you know, sort of, you know, one of these... You know, I mean, so often I, I, I hear Christians speak, I hear their teaching, I maybe read their books, and I'll tell you, they're so together, they're out of my league. They are so together. They're either free from sin, which I cannot accept on the basis of the teaching of Scripture, I can't accept they're free of sin, so they must be blind to their sin. But if they're so blind to it, why are they leaders? It's tragic. It really is tragic. And it just lands so many people up in absolute condemnation. The Lord ensured that Peter realised what a failure he was before he was eventually let loose in the Christian church as one of its leaders. So, there you are, the pros and cons of being sheep. And uh, I'll, I'll leave it there.